0: As experienced practitioners and researchers in obstetrics and gynecology, we affirm that direct abortion, the purposeful destruction of the unborn child, is not medically necessary to save the life of a woman. We uphold that there is a fundamental difference between abortion and necessary medical treatments that are carried out to save the life of the mother, even if such treatments results in the loss of of life of her unborn child. We confirm that the prohibition of abortion does not affect in any way the availability of optimal care to pregnant women. Throughout history, whenever great injustices existed, youth movements have risen up to combat and end
1: those injustices.
2: You have organizations out there like the Centre for Bioethical Reform. The Centre for Bioethical Reform.
1: Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform.
2: Organizations like the Centre for Bioethical Reform to receive public funds when they then use to attack a woman's right to choose.
1: Abortion kills all kinds of people,
2: so then... All kinds of people can join the pro-life movement to save these babies. I was talking to a young man on the streets of Toronto.
1: I spoke with a woman named Lucy about abortion.
2: Today we are doing Choice Chain in downtown Regina.
1: By the end of the conversation she was completely pro-life.
2: He then walked away 100% pro-life.
1: Completely pro-life.
2: We should remember that each of those babies that die every day in Canada not only have the right to life that's being violated, they also have the right to our defense.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pro-Life Guys podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in once again. My name is Peter. I'm the host of the show, and with me once again is Cameron Cote, my wonderful co-host. Hello, sir.
2: Peter, it is good to be back, my friend. It is that time of year where we start winding down everything. You and I have been crushing through statistics for the last several weeks because Jonathan has been on our backs about getting that, and the number of times I've sent him the updated spreadsheet. I'm sure that that he sees it every day or two, sort of thing. But it, it is amazing to be able to reflect through all of the incredible stuff that we've done this year, including stuff on the podcast. And we're going to do a whole podcast about that, so I won't spill any beans on this episode. But it is really, really cool this time of year to reflect on everything we've done.
0: Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, and when you say everything we've done, Cam, we've done. Yeah, you're talking about the work that we do with CCBR. And your reference to a podcast dedicated to all of that, all of the statistics and everything else, will be our final podcast of the year of the good Lord willing, which will be a, a 2020 CCBR year in review to highlight some of the phenomenal work that our colleagues and people across the country have been doing to fight abortion here in Canada. But that episode is not this one. The The opening quote that I started with is uh, a statement In the Dublin Declaration, the Dublin Declaration, we've referenced it before. It's a statement signed by over a thousand medical professionals, which includes obstetricians, gynecologists, midwives, and so on and so forth. And as you heard, it states that direct abortion, which is the purposeful destruction of the preborn child, is not medically necessary to save the life of a woman. And that is one of the things that we want to talk about today. We have a wonderful guest from a wonderful organization. I will get Cam to introduce him in just a moment. But before that, we would like to share with you a giveaway that we are doing. Isn't that right, sir?
2: Yeah, we are getting into the the spirit of giving. We are getting into the spirit of building up our um, incredible following. We, we appreciate so deeply the... The love that you guys have given us in the reviews, the comments, everything you've given us so far, your following, checking out this this content and sharing it with your friends and family. And we really want to say thank you. And and we figured a a really good way to do that would be to do a giveaway so that those who are already sharing the message about the Pro-Life Guys podcast are able to not necessarily get rewarded sort of thing, because we want you to be doing that anyways, regardless of whether you get rewarded or not, but largely because... We got a couple of copies of Stuck burning holes in our offices, not literally, but um, metaphorically, I was going to say metaphysically, but metaphorically burning holes in our offices. And we just want to get them out to you. We just want to get them into your library, your hands, wherever you're going to have them. Hopefully they're in your hands and then in your library or on your mantle or something like that. Um, but, but that's the giveaway, Peter. Tell us a little bit more about how somebody can receive one of these incredible apologetics books.
0: Yeah, the book Stuck, A Complete Guide to Answering Tough Questions About Abortion, written by our colleague Justina Van Manen. We have highlighted it on the show before. We will continue to do it from here on out. And it really is a book. I mean, you mentioned it's on people's mantle cam. It's on my desk regularly. I I often flip through the pages uh, trying to find arguments, seeing how Justina uh, you know, just, just put some of the arguments and shared how we at CCBR, over the last decade, have learned how to respond to some of the things that we hear on the streets. Uh, This book was not created in Justina's basement, although she may have written it there. Uh, But the contents of the book come from years upon years upon years of activism on the streets, activist after activist, staff member, uh, whether they be staff members or interns or people who have worked with CCBR. uh, We share with you in the book, Stuck, the most, yeah, just the best arguments that we have uh, that we use on the streets to see people change their mind and to see little lives saved from abortion. So we're so excited to be giving that away. As Cam mentioned, how are we going to give this away? Well, um, this is how. Uh, we we are so thankful for each and every one of you who are listening, and this is what we ask of you: Could you please uh, rate? So not every podcast catcher has this rating feature, but if you if yours does, do please rate the episode um hopefully or rate the podcast uh we we love five stars but if if you know we want you to be honest in that but uh five stars is wonderful and then send us a comment uh just comment on an episode comment on the a comment on the podcast sharing what you loved about the episode that you listened to and just to make sure so we we do check the comments um and we do love uh most of the things that are there but just to make sure that we uh yeah, are aware that you you posted the comment, that we don't miss any. If you could take a screenshot, send it to us. You can do it anywhere, really. Um, do it on Facebook. Do it on Instagram, at Pro Life Guys. You can do it on our website. But just let us know uh, that you put a comment there. You will be entered into a draw to win. Cam, I'm going to make this promise here, so we're going to have to make it work. A signed copy of cool. Stuck, and not just signed by the author. We're going to get Justina and its to sign it. But Cam and I will also sign it. Um, so hopefully, hopefully that adds value. Certainly Justina's signature adds value. Hopefully we can say that <laughs> that ours does as well. But there it is. Uh, Cam, anything else that I missed that you
2: think should be added? Just I will tack on an explanation. This isn't just for Peter and my vanity. This isn't just so that we can pat ourselves on the back that we're running <laughs> this right. sweet That's podcast. Right. Yeah, yeah. Because your comments and your reviews push us up the charts of... Of different podcasts around there. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, if not hundreds of millions. I, I don't even know how many podcasts there are available for people to listen to. And in that sea of podcasts, we want to make sure that our podcast is getting found and your reviews, your ratings help boost our, the likelihood of this podcast getting consumed by like-minded people who maybe they, maybe they're actively involved in pro-life work and just want to supplement their skills and training maybe they've never been actively involved before and they're looking to change that your reviews your ratings help boost this um up the charts we've had we've got some really good responses so far we've peaked at number four in canada for all apple podcasts in the how-to genre we've peaked at a bunch of other really exciting levels um, around the world different platforms and different podcasts and whatnot and so this really helps other people get in contact with this content and that's the goal, right? To grow this pro life movement so that more and more people have the skills that they need to change minds and save lives.
0: Yeah. On on the algorithm aspect, Cam, algorithms are funny things. If no one comments, if few people listen, uh your podcast just plummets in the in the ratings. It plummets in search searches. Uh, And all of that. But if people comment, if you guys comment, if you guys rate uh, the episode, if you guys are like, I want to get this sort of content out to more people so that more people can learn how to effectively and winsomely have, is winsomely a word? I don't know. Winsomely have conversations about abortion. um, Your comments and your ratings certainly do help with that. So thank you for that. Um, Yeah. Do, uh, Do do that. Get signed up. Uh, and get entered into a draw for Stuck, a complete guide to answering tough questions about abortion. All right, into the conversation, Cam, I promised uh, everyone who's listening that you would be the one who is introducing our guest today. Could uh, Could you share with us a little bit about who we will be speaking with?
2: Yeah, it is my absolute joy to say that we will be um, interviewing Dr. Ryan Wilson, the president of Canadian Physicians for Life. Dr. Ryan Wilson has been a good friend of mine, um, actually, since I got involved with CCBR. He was living in Calgary uh, with his lovely wife when I first moved to Calgary in 2012. That's where I first met him. Um, His younger brother is one of my best friends. He was a groomsman in my wedding. I was a groomsman in his wedding. That's where I got reconnected with Ryan again last winter, I want to say. Um, I hardly recognized him because he had one of the gnarliest handlebar mustaches I've ever seen in my life. Um, I've been growing my beard for not not straight. I I trim it, but I've been growing my beard since 2012. haven't been clean shaven since then. But um, Ryan and his uh, three brothers had these sweet, super gnarly handlebar mustaches. It's most tempted I've ever been to shave off most of my beard just to join them and be part of the glory. Um, but that that aside, he is an incredible resource. He is a doctor um, practicing in British Columbia. He's the president of the board of the Canadian Physicians for Life, who run an incredible conference. We're going to talk about that during the episode uh, and offer fantastic support to medical professionals, whether doctors, nurses, um, Midwives, midwives, other, other medical professionals, I'm sure as well, because anyone who's impacted by ethical decisions about medical procedures, they are there to help. He's a phenomenal resource. He's a brilliant guy. He's down to earth. He's a lot of fun. I'm super glad that he was willing to join us on this podcast to talk about something that comes up every time I go out to do activism. Peter, I'm sure it's the same for you, and I'm sure that it's the same for a lot of you who are tuning in as well. What about when a mother's life is in danger? Are we suggesting that we have to tell a mother that she has to die rather than do anything to protect her own life? He's going to offer a lot of insight and wisdom and knowledge um, on on this and countless other topics. And so I'm super fired up to have Dr. Uh, Ryan Wilson, president of Canadian Physicians for Life, joining the show.
0: Yeah, likewise. And we hope you find this conversation as insightful and as encouraging as we did. Dr. Ryan Wilson, thank you so much for joining us on the
1: program. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with uh, you gentlemen to discuss this most important topic.
0: Yeah, the joy is ours. We, uh, we're honoured to have you on. To, to start us off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, I know you're pro-life, you're a doctor. So perhaps share a little bit about like your pro-life journey through med school and uh, and, and what it's like to be a pro-life doctor today.
1: Sure. I grew up in the wilds of uh, British Columbia a few hours uh, west of the, uh, the Alberta border. Um, always actually wanted to be a physician, knew that was the end goal. Um, took me a while to uh, kind of come around to uh, doing it uh, the right way around. Um, but I did my undergrad degree in Calgary, University of Calgary. Um, just as I was starting university, so I guess I could say I was always sort of nominally pro-life, mainly on a family and, and culture sort of background, um, but but was not convicted in any way. Um, and actually the thing that convicted me, and I still remember the moment, was a talk by Stephanie Gray uh, that she gave in our community. Um, and the talk I, the talk was compelling, but it was actually the images that I saw that truly convicted me. It truly made me realize the horror of what abortion is. Um, and from that moment is when I knew that I wasn't sort of just pro-life, but but had to act on it and had to be convictedly pro-life. There was there was an injustice that needed to end. Um, and that's kind of what led me to join the University of Calgary uh, Campus Pro-Life, uh, which um, I'm sure many of your listeners um, may have heard of, or, or maybe I'm a bit too old. Maybe, maybe the younger folks don't know. <laughs> um, but to make a long story short, we had quite a legal battle with uh, the university, and that related to uh, our existence as a club, but um, particularly where it came to our use of, of a graphic imagery display on campus. And that battle was drawn out over several years and, and was still ongoing as of the time that I, uh, that I left the university. Um, and I think in, in a lot of ways that only serves to, uh, to deepen and harden one's conviction. So it's, uh, it's kind of a backfiring principle, I think, on the powers that be. But it turned out to really to our advantage. It convicted us who were in the group. Uh, it brought in an, an enormous amount of support uh, from the outside, um, and I think only you know only as the as the, the counter arguments became stronger and more vocal, I think it only served to equip us all the more to discuss abortion and uh, um, and of course the kind of uh, fringe issues of freedom of speech and things that go along with it, which uh, we won't touch on as much, obviously. Um, so that was my that was my undergrad experience. Um, became quite convictively pro life, uh, quite vocal. Um, there did come a point when, uh, you know, I mentioned I was always kind of geared towards medicine. I knew I wanted to go to medical school. There did come a point when I had to consider, uh, especially fighting the university and administration, I had, I had to consider, was this worth it? Uh, would this mean that I might never fulfill uh, my dream of, of being a doctor and something that, you know, I, I didn't even consider it solely my dream, but something that I ought to do that I was sort of meant to do. Um, And it was a long deliberation, a number of discussions with with, uh, trusted family members, uh, uh, co-students, and in the end I had to decide that that one can't forego something that is good and just now in the interest of fulfilling some greater uh, justice later on because we simply don't know the future to enough certainty to ever be able to make that call on, on the balance. And so I had to decide, no, you just have to make the choice that's in front of you, the right one. Um, So I I plowed ahead uh, with the injustice. Uh, I didn't get accepted to the University of Calgary Medical School. I can't say for sure if that was the reason, but I'd be surprised (laughs) if it wasn't. Um, But uh, the following year, I was accepted to the University of British Columbia. So that's where I did my medical school at a remote campus in uh, Prince George, B.C., uh, in, in the north of the province. Loved my training there. Um, continued to be involved in the pro life movement. I uh, was part of the club. It wasn't um, it wasn't an active club in the sense of apologetics uh, to the re- to the other students. It was more geared towards equipping us as medical students and trainees for our future practices. Um, but in that uh, in that time, I met um, Dr. Will Johnston, who's a former president of Canadian Physician for Life, and an amazing doctor an amazing uh, speaker, just an all round. Uh, you know, very interesting, very, very well-spoken man, and he kind of reaffirmed um, the importance of maintaining a pro-life ethic in medical practice. Uh, and as he was the president of, of Physicians for Life at the time, I actually became involved with Physicians for Life, I think in my second year of medical school and joined the board uh, shortly after. Um, and as a resident, so after, after I finished medical school, I entered family medicine uh, residency, also up north. Um, around that time, I was elected president of the Board of Physicians for Life, and and have served as the president since, um, which has been uh, an amazing experience. We have an excellent team. Um, it's been it's just just a real beacon of hope for those of us who would otherwise, you know, sort of acutely feel the darkness of the world and in, in the public, but it, probably most especially in medical practice. So it's uh, it's been a real a real joy to serve uh, on the board uh, of CPL, and uh, that kind of brings us to where we are today.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. Thank you for sharing. Before we get into Canadians Physicians for Life and what it is that you do, I have a few questions on some of the things that you said. Uh, earlier this year, I was at the Abortion Awareness Project, formerly known as the Genocide Awareness Project. I'm sure you're aware with it, uh, one of the projects we do at CCBR. And as I was trying to get in conversations with, with people, there were uh, a bunch of students walking by with the, you know, the, the outfit that what do you, what do you call it the that a lab coat the lab coat yeah that all the medical <laughs> students wear and so I asked this one guy what he thought about abortion he's like I'm a nurse like I'm I'm in medical school and uh, he continued walking and and in my experience like not just that but in other instances as well um, people in medical school medical school just have the you know we're pro choice there's there's no reason to question that or anything but but you you went through medical school pr- as a pro lifer you went through medical school medical school as someone who um, was not just you know pro life in name but also active uh, and I really like what you said highlighting um, you need to make the right choice that's in front of you because you don't know the time that's been given uh, that's going to be given to you and what's in the future but uh, let me ask you how how do you get through medical school without compromising your principles for those of you, for those of us who are li- uh, who are listening who are thinking about medical school who are thinking about becoming a nurse or a doctor or anything like that. Um, How do we get through a medical school program that's so pro-abortion without compromising the principles that we hold to?
1: That's an excellent question, and that's one that we kind of constantly evaluate. Uh, One of our main mandates at at Physician for Life is to equip medical students to do just that, to make it through while not, uh, number one, not having to compromise their ethics or beliefs, but perhaps more important, while still being able to effectively be an ambassador for the pro-life movement and and care for patients in a way that is primarily pro-life in nature. Um, one of the things that I always stress is uh, just simply to not be afraid to do it. You know, don't look at the seemingly overwhelming um, antagonism to our view in the medical field as a reason not to go through with it. And the same applies when you're in medical school and choosing a specialty. There's some people that would think that maybe pro-life people should just choose choose something that's a little less controversial so we don't, so we don't run into legal problems and, and battles like that and we can just sort of get through our careers. And and I don't think that's the right response. That's one way to do it. But I think, if anything, the controversial fields are the ones where we need to be the most. And, uh, and we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be bullied into avoiding those and we shouldn't be afraid to be vocally pro-life and, and effectively pro-life in our practices in those fields. And obviously, obstetrics and gynecology is the one that comes up when it comes to abortion, uh, family medicine, perhaps more so now with, with all the questions around a, a duty to refer, you know, based on the college uh, guidelines in Ontario and others that maybe we'll touch on later. Um, but uh, that's, that's the first thing is, is just don't be afraid to do it. I think um, beyond that, there's, there's a number of strategies that we have honed in uh, over the years about um, how... How to be effective, but not unduly call judgment down on yourself from from the administration that's above you. And there are, you know, we could talk for hours about how to effectively do that. Um, the thing that I don't like to encourage, though, is is the strategy of just keeping your head down through medical school. Um, again, because we talked about having to make a make the first choice. You know, you've got to make the right choice, and you can't you can't simply say. I'm going to you know I'm going to compromise for the next four years in the interests of, of uh, you know the, the good that I might do later on I just don't think that's the right thing to do and uh, so keeping your head down is not something that I would advise uh, medical students uh, what, what I try to do what we try to do in our in our conferences in our, uh, and our literature and support materials and so on is really give simple strategies of how to avoid confrontation with administration while still, being pro-life and and not having to compromise um, and and still being vocally pro-life those, those things are important in medical school as they are any other time um, and there's a couple I mean there's a couple of easy things so one is is be really good at what you do so when you're a medical student be a good student so that you're respected I think that it seems so simple but really that is the number one thing and I think that applies everywhere you know if you're a if you're an undergraduate student or a nursing student or or, or for that matter, a physician or a nurse or a pharmacist, if you're really good and respected in your field, um, A, people don't want to come after you with, with cloud of administration because you're respected, but B, you also change a lot of minds simply because people see you as someone that they look up to and then they realize, well, this guy is pro-life. Why, why would that be, this, this seemingly intelligent creature? Why? why would? You know, how could he be pro-life? And it really leads to a lot of uh, helpful discussion and debate. So that's probably the most important thing. And and obviously beyond that, there's there is a little bit of luck or providence, if you want to call it that, involved. And those of us who make it through without problems, and some people just, you know, try their best, but uh, they do run into trouble and and we've got a backup plan in place for that too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I found it so interesting that you say that. And I, I think it is important to recognize that that quality. I I know that it, it's a bit of a rabbit trail, but I, I think often of that excellence in your field, and I think of the people who who thinks that Tim Tebow got kicked out of the NFL because of his Christian worldview. And as as a sports guy, I I think Tim, Tim Tebow didn't get another contract because he wasn't a great quarterback, not because of his Christian worldview, but (laughs) I digress a little bit. I, I really like what he said about, um, yeah, being being excellent in field and allowing that to speak into your conviction. I remember when I was um, in university, I did a degree in genetics, and I was that super annoying kid that, that answered all the questions and asked all the questions, and everybody knew me. And so when they saw me out on on campus doing choice chain, they're like, "Oh, but but Cam, I, I thought that you were a scientist, not a, a religious nut case." And it, it really opened up the door for a productive productive conversation. Absolutely. Um, Building on what you had said about the support that you offer for um, students and and people that are, are practicing medicine across the country, um, wondering if you could share a little bit more about Canadian Physicians for Life. Um, I've I've had the the wonderful opportunity to kind of in a Indirect way, attend a couple of the conferences that Canadian Physicians for Life have put on um, as a, an exhibitor at the event. But maybe share a little bit about those conferences and some of the other support that you can offer to um, those, whether in medical school, whether practicing um, in a hospital or clinic or whatever it may be across the country, just to, to share a little bit with maybe a listener who is faced with some of these difficulties or a little bit of. Um, Kind of discrimination within the workplace, and and doesn't know where to go. I guess.
1: Sure. So Canadian Physician for Life is uh, is a Canadian, obviously, organization um, that was formed decades ago. Um, you know, shortly after the time when uh, abortion law uh, and other ethical issues were kind of were were had become and were becoming increasingly hot uh, topics uh, in medicine, and it was formed as a way for pro life. Uh, physicians to kind of bond together and uh, add uh, clarity and add strength uh, to the collective voice. And it's since grown actually quite a lot, especially in the last five or ten years. Um, our, our main missions are really to equip pro-life physicians and, and pro-life medical trainees to um, be effective uh, uh, practitioners in their fields and be effective um vocal ambassadors of the pro-life message, um, but beyond that, we, we do also have a mandate of, of trying to engage with other pro-life organizations and uh, kind of evangelize to the greater public as well to try and change the, um, the strength of, of, of you know, our pro-life uh, numbers in, in the public as a whole. Um, we do that through a number of ways, and one of the main ways that we've always done that is the is the medical student what formerly was known as the medical students forum that you uh, alluded to, Cam, um, now known as our annual conference because it's no longer limited to medical students, um, and that's a change that's actually been uh, quite uh, quite neat to see. Whereas formerly, when I started going as a medical student, there would be a group of sort of 40 or 50 uh, medical students, and we would have speakers and and talks. And uh, it, it was phenomenal. I, I remember the thing that we always hear is, "Geez, I, th- I really thought I was the only one." And we have <laughs> we we have students from virtually every univer- every medical school, every university across the country, um, and our numbers are now sort of you know one hundred. I think our last conference, this past one, which was done virtually, was you know in excess of one hundred and fifty attendees. Um, some of which are medical students, some are practicing physicians, retired physicians, nurses, midwives. So it's it's become quite. Um, quite a meeting place, quite a gathering place of ideas. And, and one of the, I think, the primary things that that event serves is, is just to um, make us all realize that we're not alone, that we have this actually quite large network. And that just, um, you know, it, it shouldn't make a difference. But I think to all of us as humans, it does. It, it gives you that little pat on the back to say, you're, you know, you're, you're not on your own. You're, you're doing okay. There's more people that feel the same way. And uh, I'm, I'm certainly victim to that, that sentiment myself. And I, I love the hope that um, that is brought to all of us when, when we all get together and, and realize the strength uh, that we have. Um, so essentially, that conference consists of uh, talks geared towards whatever the, the hot ethical issues are. Um, in the past few years, it's been euthanasia, um, uh, physician-assisted suicide, and conscience rights. And obviously, abortion is always a part of that. Um, Part of it is apologetics, teaching apologetics techniques to our attendees, and part of it is uh, areas where we can use these principles in our own practices to make us effective pro-life doctors or nurses or midwives. Um, And all of that is really quite helpful, and of course we have uh, other organizations that attend, Cam, as you have. uh, where, where it's, it's, it's kind of, that part is, is a lot easier, obviously in person, cause you can actually circulate around the booths and, and, uh, meet other faces in the pro-life movement, um, get to know, you know, the other organizations that are all at play and, and really just builds a, I think a strong network. So it's a phenomenal event. Um, some of the other ways that we do that we accomplish our goals, of course, are um, our literature engagement with the media engagement, uh, a small amount of engagement with uh, parliament and government, of course, as a as a charity that's that can't be our primary aim. But we do assist other organizations, mostly um, when able. Um, recently, we also have a crisis line, which has been well used and very helpful for those who've needed it. Which is a twenty four hour hotline, essentially for. Um, medical uh, trainees and doctors who get into trouble in, in some kind of ethical dilemma, and they can call up that number and they get uh, immediate access to a lawyer who can kind of guide them through, you know, what what you should do initially. And after that, they're connected with with an expert in that field um, and uh, to kind of take things from there. It's really a phenomenal service, and it's it's uh, provided free of charge. It's sort of part of our mandate. So. Um, I, I could go on for hours about, about all, all the things we do, but, uh, but those are the main ones. And, uh, and I, like I say, I'm, I'm excited to say that we've really grown a lot over the past few years.
2: That's phenomenal, and and I think it's so encouraging for medical students or or kids, um, kids, <laughs> young adults that are thinking of getting into medical school, and that kind of thing. I, I remember when one of my best friends, names Jose, he lives in Vancouver, and when he told me that he was planning on applying to medical school, my my initial reaction was to cringe and and say, you know what, like this is phenomenal. You would be a an incredible doctor if you get through this, but are you going to be able to get through it? And I think that's so encouraging and and so comforting to know that. Um, there, there's a, a whole team of people that are there to help, whether he gets in legal trouble, whether he gets in other kinds of trouble, I don't know quite the extent of trouble that you guys can help out of whether it's parking tickets or other stuff. I'm sure that Jose <laughs> would get into lots of trouble at, um, at medical school, but, um, he's a champ. That being said, uh, let, let's dive into a couple of questions. This podcast is, is kind of dedicated towards helping, by and large, people respond to different questions that they might encounter, whether they're at a pro-life display, whether they're talking to a co-worker or a friend or family member. And one thing that I find comes up time and time again is that abortion advocates will, um, whether it's uh, in defense of a real-life circumstance that they've encountered, whether they're using it as something of a... A human shield to defend a a universal right or or access to abortion, this idea of the health of the mother and the life of the mother as justification for abortion to be performed, that that if a mother's life is at risk or health is at risk, she should be allowed to access abortion for her own sanity or safety, that kind of thing. and and I think it's important to answer these questions. i'd be I'd be curious kind of a twofold question. First of all, is there an important distinction between health of the mother and life of the mother? I know this has come up in law on a, a couple of different occasions. Um, and then second of all, how do we how do we navigate questions where somebody says abortion has to be accessible for mothers when they've been told their life is in danger? Does that make sense as a question?
1: Yeah, yeah. Now let's, uh, so first of all, I'd like to make clear that I think you're, your first statement was true, that this is often simply used as, as a springboard uh, by the pro-choice side to mm-hmm. kind of to make the point that abortion needs to be universally available because sometimes <laughs> it's medically necessary, if if you want to use the term. Um, and if I think all you have to do to understand that logic is think about the fetus as a newborn and decide, would those things justify killing a newborn to save the life of a mother? And, um, and I think that's the important point. And why I say that is because this exact reason, um, I understand, is, is part of the way that our legislation against abortion was gradually eroded because for a time, you know, various hospitals or jurisdictions would have a requirement that you had to get so many signatures or had to go before a tribunal, for example, to decide whether your abortion request was deemed medically necessary. And that that is so subjective in nature that it essentially meant that some Jurisdictions were declining all of the applications, and some were approving all of them. And so if you looked at, for example, the Canadian um, Obstetrics and Gynecology Society, they will say that, that abortions are medically necessary simply because the psychological health of the mother may be at risk. But again, if you think about, if you're coming from the standpoint that the fetus or the embryo is a, is a unique human being, then this, this debate is kind of irrelevant. Like psychological health for one person would never justify killing another. So the only times that it really matters, I think, ethically speaking, are when the life of the mother is truly threatened. And I mean truly threatened. That's the only time that ethically you can sit down and have a discussion about whether that would justify early termination of a pregnancy. And I use that term carefully, and this is my second point. That when we talk about abortion being medically necessary, almost always we're not really talking about a Morgenthaler clinic abortion. And everyone in the medical field knows there's a difference. When we talk about, for example, an ectopic pregnancy, at no point does anyone entertain the idea of sending a referral to the local neighborhood abortion clinic to deal with an ectopic pregnancy. So even though we're having a discussion about whether ethically ending that pregnancy is justified, it's... Not even really the same thing as an abortion, um, and I think everybody intuitively knows that. Who is involved directly in it? The in the public eye, I you know I get that there's a lot of confusion about that because the procedure might, on the outset, sound a little bit similar, and the end result is certainly the same. The pregnancy ends. Unfortunately, the embryo can't be saved, and and it it's done in the interest of saving a mother's life. So, so that's kind of the second point that that the terminology is a little bit different. So really what the debate centers on for us and the thing that we need to be informed about is, yes, there are times when a pregnancy has to be ended prematurely in order to save the life of a mother. And that's going to come up in a number of scenarios. And, and if we have time, we can just go through them quickly now. So there's probably the most common is going to be when the pregnancy itself or something about the pregnancy is directly threatening the life of the mother, and ectopic pregnancy would probably be the most common uh, one that comes up. And that's, as, as your listeners probably know, is when instead of an embryo or a, or a blastocyst implanting in the uterus where it is supposed to be, it implants elsewhere, typically in the fallopian tube, which can't ultimately handle the growth, and that causes a rupture and, and is one of the more common reasons actually for, for fatal hemorrhage in the developing world where this situation might not be recognized early enough. Um, so that's, that's one reason is when the pregnancy itself is actually doing something that's, that's threatening the life of the mother. Probably the, the next most common would be where there's a pre-existing medical condition in the mother that will get much worse because of the pregnancy. And, and that might be a, uh, you know, a, a poorly functioning heart, for example, or, or very bad kidney disease where the normal physiologic changes of pregnancy will not be handled by the disordered, unhealthy organ. And that um, and that is a little bit more difficult it's more challenging to sort through ethically because because you don't it's much harder to predict which women will actually progress to a life-threatening physiologic derangement and which will actually do okay with pregnancy if they're monitored carefully so that one's a little bit harder ectopic pregnancies almost universally I say almost almost universally will not be carried to a, to a point of viability for the embryo and that's that's just unfortunately how it is. But for these other situations with, with cardiac or renal disease, um, you can actually carry a pregnancy to term, but it's just a, a much much higher risk. So that leads to a bit more of an ethical dilemma. but again, the interesting thing is when we talk about an ethical dilemma, you know the three of us are sitting down and we're coming from a position where the premise is that there are two patients. And the value is equal, and we have to make the decision based on that premise. And when we go, when a pro-choice person approaches this argument, they don't accept that premise. So it's it's you know it's not really a debate, you know. So it, I, I think it's important for us to be informed. But actually, the truth is we're not on the same page with our with our pro-abortion opponents on this issue, and it's and it's not really going to be a debating point per se is going to be something that you're going to have to know how to respond to because it, the objection will be raised, but you're never going to convince, anyone's, you know, convince anyone out of their pro-choice arguments based on these scenarios uh, specifically. Um, so we've had those two situations. Now, the other two perhaps more fringe situations are, are the third, I would say, is where there is a condition in the mother that needs to be treated and the treatment itself will, will cause an abortion or miscarriage or, or in some other way end or threaten the pregnancy. And the the common one there would be cancer. So there are cancers that that will show up in women who are of reproductive age, and they can um, be detected during pregnancy or sometimes are detected because of the pregnancy, you know, for example, because the ultrasounds or something else that are done. And they will sometimes require treatment, and that treatment, such as chemotherapy, is known to cause abortion or end a pregnancy or at the very least threaten a pregnancy quite severely. And that's, again, that's an ethical discussion that you need to have based on the fact that you have two patients and the risk to the mother has to be significant enough that it justifies ending the life, not directly or intentionally, but the end result is ending the life uh, of the embryo or fetus. So we're not talking about, you know, a mole that needs to be removed justifying ending a pregnancy. Those aren't the same thing. It's essentially what it means is, the life of the mother truly has to be threatened. Um, so that would be the third thing. And the last one that I'll throw in there, which should never be considered a justification for abortion by, by pro-life people, is uh, serious uh, fetal anomalies, which may in themselves be life-threatening or may simply be a cause of disability later on. Or, you know, it doesn't really matter what the reasons are, but this will often be raised as a reason uh, for medical necessity of abortion by our pro-choice opponents. And they will use this situation. They will say, sometimes there are fetal anomalies that are not compatible with life, and we should allow for abortion in those cases to prevent, you know, psychological harm or, you know, or a difficult uh, delivery or whatever the case may be. And uh, I want to make it clear that for me, and I think there's pretty wide acceptance of this stance amongst pro-life ethicists and physicians, that reason is never a justification uh, for termination of pregnancy because if you're not you, you don't have that balance of saving one life at the cost of another it, it doesn't exist you're only destroying one life and why so that natural death won't happen later that's that's clearly not justifiable so I, I mentioned that one but discard it outright so I would say that the first three are really the the reasons when we talk about having to terminate a pregnancy earlier uh, than we would like and uh, if that happens before the age of viability or around the age of viability, say let's say 23, 24 weeks, um, that will result in the death of the embryo or the fetus, um, and that would only be justifiable if uh, if the commensurate good that is saving the life of the mother is present.
2: Love it. Oh, man, it is good to have you on the show to be able to break that down. Peter, I, I know that you want to jump in there. I, I Just one quick thing, Peter, before I throw it over to you. I love um, how you, you threw in that definition in there. How are we defining within the context of our, our conversation, our debate, whatever we're having, what do we mean by abortion? It's something that I asked during ap- apologetics workshops that generally we walk through this common ground analogy question process. You trotted out the toddler, would, be, would we be willing to kill a born child um, in similar circumstances sort of thing? That, that clarification of the definition, because often I'll ask the audience, the pro-life audience, when we're talking about abortion, do we mean simply anything that brings about the end of that child's life? No, it's only something that directly and intentionally brings about their life that is ethically problematic. Um, and so I, I super appreciate that clarification, Peter. I know that you want to jump in there. Um, so I'll throw it back over to you because there's a, a million gems in there to unpack, I think.
0: Yeah. Uh, thank you for that, Dr. Wilson. What, one of the the things that um, w- was really important, I think you, Cam, you touched on this too, Cam, is the definition of terminating a pregnancy. Often the pro-abortion movement talks about Terminating a pregnancy as being equivalent to abortion, but really defining that. But when, when you're making these distinctions, when you're talking about um, kind of the, these health issues and, and not the, not the fe- fetal anomalies, but the, the others that the mother might have, I think there's a, a good distinction, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're making about, uh, s- sorry, you're making between intentionally ending the life of a child. Um, number one, and number two, targeting the problem. And as a a, a sad and tragic result, the child dies um, because of that. Um, So in in terms of an ectopic pregnancy, where uh, you say that there will not be a case, or or very rarely uh, a case where a preborn child will live um, in that state until uh, the stage of viability, could you share like some of the, the ways that we can respond? I know there's a huge ethical question or ethical questions there, but what are some of the different medical procedures that are available and which ones would you say are ethically good to, to pursue and which ones are not?
1: Sure. That's, that's a surprisingly difficult question to answer. Well, the options, the options are easy to answer. Why don't we start? With that? <laughs> <Right>. Essentially <laughs> in an ectopic pregnancy, and let's limit this to the case of when it's located within the tube. Which would be the most common? um, There's kind of three options that I can think of. One would be a medication given that uh, essentially causes a miscarriage or abortion. It stops the fetal cells or the embryonic cells from replicating, and that would that drug would normally be methotrexate, which is the same one that's used in some medical abortions. Um, And I mean, I'm talking about induced, quote, elective. Abortions, when I use that term, um, so that's one. You can use medication sometimes in certain circumstances. Your other two options are basically surgical, and one way might be to open the tube surgically, remove the implanted embryo and its sort of pseudo placenta, and then close the tube back up. Um, again, knowing you're not intending or or um, or targeting the embryo for destruction. You're trying to alleviate the deranged, the, the pathologic state. Um, now, some would say that because you're directly removing the embryo, that you have directly targeted the embryo, and the good effect, which is saving the life of the mother, has been brought about by the the ill um, uh, procedure of removing the embryo. And some would say that ethically that's not justified. Now, the counter argument to that, though, which might, now we're kind of getting into the weeds and we might call this semantics, is that you could say, you could say that the real pathologic state there is the trophoblast, which is, uh, which is not actually the embryonic cell. It's, it's the very beginning of the placenta. That's actually the cause of the problem. And when you remove the trophoblast, you're not actually directly removing the embryo and therefore the principle of, of double effect would still apply. Again, I, I, I would consider this a bit of semantics, and to be honest, I'm not well versed enough in in the in the kind of the bioethics themselves to really be able to comment one way or the other. Um, the third and probably most widely accepted as being you know ethically justifiable is to remove the entire tube. Um, so you haven't cut open the tube and removed the embryo; you remove the tube itself. And the reason I think there's more more of an acceptance of that is because it's more clear that you're, that you're correcting the pathology, which is the, the tube expanding and potentially rupturing. So, so by removing the tube, you haven't clearly brought about the good effect through the bad one. Um, you've kind of, you've, you've done something which you know has two effects, one of which is good and one of which is bad, and you don't intend the bad effect, and it's justifiable because it's, the good is commensurate. So I think there's widespread agreement that that would be acceptable. The other two... I would say are not widely accepted even amongst pro-life ethicists but there are some that would that would say those are justifiable and and again I'm not I'm not the right one to ask about the specifics of why or why not they wouldn't be justifiable but the important thing for us is that again we're coming from the premise that we see the value in that second smaller patient and that's why we're having the debate so for me I'm I'm actually just happy that we're having a discussion based on those principles and we're not just saying that that embryo is is uh is kind of worthless and it doesn't really matter what you do because it has no intrinsic value that's that's what i like about our discussion
2: 100 and and i think that's so important to understand where where we're coming from and then we're some whether it's medical practitioners that don't acknowledge any value in the life of that pre-born child or or even just random people that we're talking to on the street i i Tragically, I've spoken to dozens of, of mothers who have told me, oh, you know what my doctor told me to, to have an abortion. And, and tragically, some of those women, they, they know what medical situation their doctor was trying to alleviate or avoid. Um, but at times, I've, I've literally spoken downtown Calgary to people who are living on the streets and their doctors tell them, you know what, the best case scenario for you is if you become pregnant, just go and have an abortion. And while I, I have a hard time thinking that that doctor desperately wants to increase the carnage in Canada and is seeking opportunities to kill children, it, it'd be fair to say that that's, a doctor might say that because they don't place any value on that second patient, right? That, yeah, if you're only dealing with one patient, that mother might go through a very difficult um, health scenario or a very complicated procedure or a very expensive on the system kind of procedure. If you're only thinking about one patient, abortion might make a, a ton of sense, right? It might be simpler than some of these other procedures that ethical doctors would actually recommend with two patients. Would that be fair to say?
1: I think that's completely fair to say. Yeah, and that's um, and that's why I made the point earlier that this this debate about which procedures, you know, which um, induction or termination of pregnancies would be justifiable or not is not a is not a point that we're going to convince our opponents because the premise is not the same. We need to tackle the premise. That's really where the meat is. But I think this our discussion is very important because we do need to be informed about these so-called difficult situations because there will be people that bring them up and if and if we can't respond in a in a somewhat educated way then then I think that you know in that person's eyes we will have removed all um all of our our justification basically.
0: No, totally. That's uh, that. That's good. If I could change the the tune just a little bit, um, I know Canadian Physicians for Life uh, doesn't take an official stance or any stance on contraception. Neither does CCVR or the pro-life guys. However, there has been discussion in the pro-life movement about certain types of birth control being abortifacient in nature. Um, so perhaps having a number of different functions, one of them being ending. Um, the pregnancy after fertilization. Um, So number one, I, I guess the question is, is this true? um, the, the, the word that we've been hearing and, uh, and could you share a little bit more about some of these birth control options?
2: And, and one thing that I'll just throw in there, maybe even, I I'm sure most of our listeners will, will understand a, a complete difference, but maybe even if, if you want to start by talking about something like the morning after pill, which, uh, when, when you look at it really doesn't have any kind of pretense about being, um, preventative birth, con- uh, birth control in the first place, but rather um, something that you take after fertilization. So maybe, maybe if you wouldn't mind starting with that one and kind of walking back towards ones that might have multiple functions like Peter had mentioned. Sure.
1: It's, uh, this is also a surprisingly difficult question to answer um, because we actually don't really have the science in almost every case to know with certainty what the common effects of these agents are. And most of them have multiple theoretical or or biologically plausible effects, one of which might be an abortifacient activity. The only way to know, of course, how frequently that's happening would be to do a study where you're actually taking washings from a fallopian tube to see how often uh, ovulation and fertilization are occurring. But nobody's going to do that study because the pro-life people will be guilty of terminating the life of an embryo by doing that, and a pro-choice person doesn't want to know the answer, presumably. So, so I don't think that I don't think we're ever going to have the benefit of solid evidence or science to answer this question. We're kind of left in the realm of of theory, and um, there's some there's some that are more clear cut than others. So, barrier methods obviously are not abortifacient. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, um, I would say that the copper IUD intrauterine device which is just that, a, a copper piece of metal that gets placed in the uterus to cause a foreign body reaction. I think there's probably widespread acceptance that the primary method of, of that, um, of that uh, IUD working is prevention of implantation of an embryo or a, or a blastocyst. So that would be probably fairly widely accepted, uh, at least a proportion of the time causing abortion at a very early time. Um, hormonal IUDs, such as the Mirena or JDES, which are the same idea. It's an intrauterine device that gets placed through the cervix, inside the uterus, but releases a hormone that looks to the body like progesterone. Um, That would have a number of theoretical effects. So, one would be to thin the lining and, and and thicken the cervical mucus to not allow sperm to pass through. So, actually, it might be working by preventing fertilization, or because it's thinning the lining, it might be working. By, um, by, again, an embryo not being able to implant after it's been fertilized, which would be considered abortifacient. Um, or it might be a combination of the two. And again, I don't think we're really going to know. And um, the same would be true of an oral contraceptive pill. So still, the product monograph, which is kind of the official document that accompanies every drug that's on the market, the product monograph for oral contraceptive pills, to my knowledge, still, list three effects, which is prevention of ovulation, um, uh, a thickening of, uh, of cervical mucus to not allow sperm passage and fertilization, and thinning of the uterine lining to not allow implantation of a blastocyst. So that's still listed in the monograph. Now, there's lots of debate on this one, and and the Society of uh, Obstetrics and Gynecology has released a statement saying it's not abortifacient, it doesn't work that way. Um, and again, I... I just don't know if we're ever going to know the answer to this. I think people need to make that decision based on what they think the likelihood of these different effects is. And probably for a lot of your listeners, even the possibility of, of early abortifacient activity is probably too much um, to allow their use. I mean, particularly I'm thinking in the case of the IUDs and and Plan B. Um, so Plan B really is, is a big dose of progesterone, essentially, or, or a progesterone-like compound. And so it also would have several theoretical possibilities. If taken before ovulation, it probably would inhibit ovulation; it would prevent ovulation from happening. Um, so that would be one possible effect. But if taken after ovulation, but not in time to prevent sperm passage, then presumably fertilization is happening, and again, it would be preventing implantation of, of an otherwise viable uh, blastocyst into the uterus, which would be which would be an abortifacient action. So. Um, the, the, timing of that one would be particularly important, but, um, again, it's, the, the product monograph will, will list all of those possible effects because that, that's what the research was done in, in animals. But, uh, we don't really know, uh, you know, the frequency of each of those things happening and I don't think we're ever going to know. Um, now one thing that I, I do want to point out, which unfortunately clouds the waters of this discussion, is the way people are defining abortifacient, um, activity. Um, and so frequently you'll hear um, pro-choice or, you know, or, or pro, let's even let's say pro-contraceptive um, folks saying uh, these, you know, these, uh, these compounds do not end, do not terminate a pregnancy. Um, but if, if you kind of dig a little bit deeper, often what they're defining as a pregnancy is an implanted blastocyst. So one that is already implanted in the wall of hopefully the uterus. And when we talk about ending a pregnancy, what matters to us is the embryo, not, not the fact that it's implanted or not. So we're actually defining that term a little bit differently. So your listeners do need to be aware of that, that fact. And when someone makes a claim, we do need to know exactly what we're talking about. Now, fortunately, the science is, is, is quite clear. We, we know exactly what happens to an embryo in its passage, and, and we know a little bit about the chemistry and, and physics of how it's implanting. So that information is there, but again, the semantics, unfortunately, are clouding the debate a little bit. But if we're aware of that, then I think we can have an informed uh, discussion.
2: Mm-hmm. And and I think that's a super, super valuable clarification. I'm glad that you mentioned Stephanie Gray Connors at, at the beginning. I, I think that this is probably a common theme for a lot of the guests that we have on here, at least in the Canadian pro-life movement, that many of us had Stephanie Gray as, as one of our um, early influences getting involved. And I remember she used to make the analogy of, if you go hunting in the woods and you see a rustle in the bushes... Unless you know with absolute certainty that that isn't your hunting partner, you can't shoot and and that was kind of the the advice that she gave to um us the audience at, at University of Victoria when I first heard her, and I know that she's given that on several other occasions of just you know what if in doubt, um think about what's at stake All right, Try try on that toddler again if if this could potentially not. Um, absolutely, but but potentially, and life of a human being, then, then we probably um, should bear that in mind. Um, I know that we're getting to the the like forty five minute mark right here already. There's a million other questions that we'd love to ask you. Maybe one quick question before we get to a conversation about conscience rights. You you touched on it earlier. I don't know if there's a ton more to say about it about that fourth area that people suggest um, is a, a viable reason for abortion, and that's um, the health of the child. And and you see horrifying statistics and and comments from places like Iceland, where they say that they've quote unquote cured Down syndrome. And and places like France where they won't even let billboards be posted featuring um a child or, or anybody for that matter who ha who is Down syndrome. Um and and just a, a quick comment on the the thought process and maybe even an encouragement for a mother who maybe they go in for an ultrasound and the doctor says, Oh, there's, there's an X percent chance based on the, the, the nose bridge gap. I think that's what they said during our ultrasound, um, that my wife and I went into, um, that this child might have down syndrome. Therefore here's a pamphlet to consider abortion sort of thing. Just a thought on, um, an encouragement for mothers or fathers who find themselves in that situation. A thought on that growing trend of curing these, whether they're genetic abnormalities or, or other conditions, by simply killing those children.
1: I guess there's two parts to that question. The, the first that I'll answer is is the, the kind of the nature of that what what can appropriately be termed eugenic attitude towards um, particularly Down syndrome, because that would be the most common, probably. Form of a genetic abnormality that's detectable before birth, that uh, does not that it is compatible is perfectly compatible with life, but will lead to difficulty and often some dis- some element of disability later on. So that's you know that's often where where this debate sort of centers. The first thing I would say is it's horrifying and shocking that we're at a point where that would be considered a win, that we have you know that that the number of down syndrome cases is below a certain threshold because we don't, we don't cure genetic abnormalities yet. Maybe there will come a time when we can, but we don't right now. And that simply means that those embryos are being targeted for destruction because of that trait. And that is absolutely horrifying and needs to stop. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, and it's, it's, it's a point of shame for me that my profession is, is at the forefront of this movement. But I should point out that um, although a minority of physicians would consider themselves pro-life, there's a, a much larger number that see the problem in this approach to prenatal care. That see a problem in this approach, which is there's an abnormality detected. Um, let's go down the abortion train and kind of deal with that problem. Um, so I think there is there's a growing appreciation, actually, that that's not the way we should be handling this. And um Although it might not be an effective uh, tool in discussion, or maybe it would be, I don't know. There, you know, you have to look no further really than the eugenics movements of the past to see the problem with this. And, and just think to yourself, if we targeted born children with this trait, with destruction, would it be okay? And the answer obviously is going to be no. So again, we have, um, we have the, the basis to launch into a discussion about why is it different for a pre-born child? Um, and that's really where the debate should center with this issue along with others. Now, the second part of the question is what, what do you, what do I suggest for people that find themselves in that difficult situation? And that's, I mean, that's much harder. That's, that's a, um, that can be a real shock. That can be, there's an element of tragedy there. There can be an element of sadness. There's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a huge range of emotions that go along with that. And it's, it's a very, very difficult situation, almost universally, um, and that there's no, there's no easy fix for that. Um, I think the best, the best that we can hope for is that those parents have a physician that they can trust has the interests of, of both patients in mind that can guide them through that. Because, um, I can't imagine being in that scenario where there's this huge, you know, mix of emotions and you don't really know what to do. And then you've got a doctor that you're supposed to be able to trust telling you, to go for an abortion and if you didn't know otherwise you might you might just follow that advice and i think that's that's a real tragedy i wish there were more i wish there was more access to to conscientious pro-life physicians that can really guide parents through that uh difficult time
2: yeah 100%. Hundred percent, and one quick thing, just because I know that we're we're starting to run out of time here, um, is is just one thing that I'll add on. I, I don't know if you're familiar with with the essay. It's called "Welcome to Holland." I, I think it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful essay um, that we'll include in the show notes. That that kind of shares the experience of one mother and her journey through raising a, a child with disabilities. And I, I think it's it's a beautiful reflection on the kind of change of mentality that comes when when you may receive that news and and i think that you hit the nail on the head that, that this will be a, a difficult journey for for parents for the children obviously as well who who may be um struggling with whatever different challenges they might encounter through their life um, but at the end of the day like you said if we can't kill born children for this reason why are we going to kill pre-born children the last question that I know is a, a bit of another change of pace, um, and maybe it's, it's a big kettle of fish, but um, you, we mentioned at the beginning the conversation about conscience rights, and sometimes we have people um, engage us at our choice chain displays or, or other uh, conversational opportunities and ask whether or not, you know what, sure, you're, you're a pro-life doctor, I respect that, you should have to refer somebody For for abortion, for I mean, for the sake of our show, let's keep it to abortion. Though obviously, this um, relates to euthanasia, assisted suicide, that kind of thing as well. But um, what would you encourage somebody to to bear in mind, and maybe even consider relating to the person they're talking to when the question of physician conscience rights come up, or or conscience rights, obviously, of any medical um, professional, whether it's the doctor, the nurse, the the secretary at the door, sort of thing. And that conversation about conscience rights and how vital that is uh, when it comes to these ethical um, decisions.
1: I'm glad you brought that up, Cam, because for us, um, this is the forefront right now. This is this is the battleground. And um, we have the opportunity now to get conscience rights kind of entrenched in legislation. And, and this would make such an enormous difference for our ability to care for patients in a, in a truly pro-life way. Um, unfortunately, we're not there yet. Um, and some places in the country are more difficult than others, and so far it's really a province-by-province province issue. I think the first thing to point out is that may, maybe we made a mistake when we framed the debate as conscience rights, um, because uh, we're not, as, as pro-life physicians, it's not actually about my right. I I do think I have, you know, freedom of conscience is, is enshrined in our, in our charter, so I, I do believe that that is the case, but that's not really why I want to practice in a pro-life way. I want to practice in a pro-life way because, because I think it's good for patients. And I think patients deserve the ability to find a physician who they know will follow their conscience because everything in medicine is about judgment. There, there really are no or few absolutes. Every, every decision that's made is, is balanced on a huge number of factors. And without conscience, there is no ability for the physician to, to have integrity to make a choice that's, that's truly informed, um, by, by some kind of objective ethics. And I think the, the best way to frame this for other people, though, is simply to say that every physician has conscience. Every physician has things that they will not do. Um, and, and a a really, you know, a really good one to bring up is female genital mutilation. Um, so think if, if a couple goes to their doctor and asks for this procedure, should the doctor do it or refer for it, even though they know it's wrong? And everyone will agree, no, they shouldn't. So the issue here is not really about physicians having a conscience. It's about a disagreement about which procedures should be within that realm. And the problem is, there will be differences of opinion amongst physicians, both kind of scientifically, you know, in terms of the evidence, but also ethically. And I don't think that's a problem. I, I think that's a, that's a strength of the, of the profession that we have, that we have a, a, you know, broad background of views. And to say, to, to, to kind of mandate that there is a duty to refer is, is telling a physician, is actually telling a patient really, to go to their physician and say, I know that you think this procedure is wrong, but I'm asking you to do it anyways. And just pause for a moment uh, and think about, is that the kind of physician that you want caring for you? The one that will do what they believe, what they deeply believe is wrong simply because it was asked for. That's, that's a pretty horrifying scenario. And so when we talk about conscience, what what I really try and phrase this is: is it's about patience. About patients being able to um, be under the care of a physician who who knows what they believe and will follow that, and not simply do things because they're mandated or because they're asked for. That's and and that's a shocking scenario. I don't want to be. I don't want my family members cared for by a, by a physician who will bend over when they're asked to do something that is deeply wrong, that they believe is deeply wrong. That's that's just a horrifying scenario. So it's important to know that the debate is actually framed we should be framing the debate based on patient care not based on physician's rights even though you know unfortunately we've kind of called it conscience rights we're in we're in that uh, trench now but it's not that's not really what it's about it's not it's not about my rights it's about patient care
2: that's so good i i love the way you put that and and i honestly haven't ever thought of it that way before that, that this is about patients deserving a doctor who has integrity and is actually going to Provide the best care possible, not just whatever whim you came up with. I, I'm sure that that happens more and more with um, the prevalence of web MD and, and everyone um, self diagnosing. Just in general, let alone um, these ethical questions as well. So I, I really like the way that you framed it that way. If this is not about um, a physician being being able to stay up on their high horse, but rather physicians actually being able to fulfill their their responsibility, their duty, their calling as a medical professional to give the best care possible. And, and I'm sure in in a lot of ways, I I know that it's mentioned on your website a, a bunch of times about the Hippocratic Oath and how I, if, if memory serves correct and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this, this oath is all about, um, kind of the disposition of medical professionals in their attitude towards patients and how this should be the guiding principle, what is best for all patients involved, not just best for society because it saves a couple bucks, or best for the clinic because we get this sponsorship, or best for anybody other than the patient, right?
1: Yeah, totally. Um, the, so the Hippocratic Oath is kind of interesting because um, obviously it's an ancient oath, Dating back to the past days in the Greek society, and it was born out of a time of, of kind of deeply entrenched corruption amongst the medical practitioners of the time. And I see its value now as um, not not in you know not so much in the specifics because there are there are you know if you read the oath the original oath in its entirety you'll see things that that are kind of random in there. You know, you will see things about not, uh, not dissolving a kidney stone, for example, and, and you could talk about why that was in the oath and, uh, you know, and, and its relevance today. I don't know. But the, the things that really matter there, obviously, are the, and, and this was the reason that it's been professed for so many centuries now, um, are the, the deep duty for patient care and, and that, you know, in essence, the oath states that uh, you're not in this for yourself. It's, it's about your patient. And the things that are, of course, contentious nowadays are the specific statement about not providing an abortive um, and uh, and the statement about not not killing your patient, basically not harming your patient, and and those things are are probably the re- almost certainly the reason why the the oath has been, um, if you'll forgive the term, bastardized. Uh, in the last few decades, uh, to the point where now, you, you know, most medical schools graduating class will pick whatever oath they, they find acceptable that, that's, that's sort of, you know, that's sort of sufficiently vague and meaningless that it can be professed by everyone. And at my medical school graduation, I, I didn't, I refused to profess that oath because it was nonsense. Um, and instead we, you know, this, a smaller group of us afterwards actually made a more formal ceremony out of the profession of the traditional Hippocratic oath. And, and we've all, we all have a copy of that with our signatures on it for some accountability. So, um, the, the oath has, has relevance for sure today, but unfortunately not all physicians take it and, and not all physicians agree with the basic principles within it. And perhaps more importantly than the specifics of the oath, or the fact that you that you uh, make a commitment that you're going to do what you believe is right, and and again, this kind of speaks to the issue of of conscience. Of course, that um, without some semblance of, of an oath, then you're kind of left to the whims of 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 society and government's desires, and and that's the part that removes any semblance of true professionalism from the practice of medicine. And I think it's it's the judgment that makes medicine um a profession it's it's the there it's not a it's not a recipe it's not a cookbook there are no easy decisions and that's that's why you know that's why the training is long and that's why you know that's why you have to learn so much because you have to make that decision based on the principles that you that you've known Um, but no two patients no two scenarios are going to be exactly the same and so Having a guiding oath or a guiding principle is is critically important, and I think it's also nice to know that your physician has taken such an oath. And for that reason, there is actually a Society of Hippocratic Physicians in Canada, where you can look up uh, um, names, or there was for a time, anyways, where you can look up names of other people that have taken that oath and and get some idea. Okay, so you know, in my town, these physicians are the ones that that seem to ascribe to a more traditional pro life ethic.
0: Perfect. Thank you very much for that. Dr. Wilson, uh, as Cam mentioned, our time is coming to an end. For those of, of uh, the listeners who perhaps are in med school, um, trying to navigate their way as a pro-lifer through med school, or perhaps thinking about it or perhaps just have any other questions, maybe for clarification or about a, another particular topic. How can they get in contact with either you or Canadian Physicians for Life?
1: Uh, the simple answer to that is is go to our website, which is PhysiciansForLife.ca, and the contact info will all be there. But also, I'm I'm happy to receive personal emails from any of your listeners. So maybe I'll leave my email with you. You can post it in the show notes, uh, and 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 I truly mean that. I'm I'm happy, absolutely happy. I would be delighted to receive uh, emails from your listeners about you know specifics or about uh, generalities, anything. Um, but, you know, just to get connected with us, just go to our website. Everything is on there, including the crisis line and our resources. It's it's all on there.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to spend this hour talking to us about these. Yeah, like you, like you mentioned yourself, uh, pretty difficult questions uh, that we face in the pro-life community. So thank you very much.
1: It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: All right, everyone. That was Dr. Ryan Wilson from Canadian Physicians for Life. It was a great conversation. We learned a lot, and uh, and we really enjoyed it. We hope you enjoyed it just as much as we did. I just want to remind everyone about the giveaway that we are doing. Take a few minutes, write in a little comment, what did you enjoy about this episode, and uh, and let us know that you commented so that we can enter you in for the draw to, to win the book, Stuck by our colleague Justina van Mannen, a complete guide to answering tough questions about abortion, it is it is my favorite resource, Kim. I think I've I've had enough conversations with you to know that this is your favorite resource as well. Something we dive into very very regularly. And then one final thing, uh, I don't know if it's like I mean we're new to pod, the podcast world. We've never gone through a Christmas season before, but so I don't know if if people take breaks during during uh, the holidays. We have episodes lined up for every Tuesday without fail. So the good Lord willing, we will be posting those and, uh, and you, will, yeah, we, we will, you will be able to continually listen to some of the content that we are putting out every single Tuesday or whenever you decide or have time to listen up. Cam, any final words, sir, before we wrap this up?
2: Just want to build upon our last episode and really encourage people to consider having those hard but super, super important conversations about abortion during this Christmas season. I know there's a lot of other things to talk about. I know there's a lot of stress on everybody's mind because of the whole COVID thing. Um, We tried to cover a bunch of tools last week, and I really, really want to remind everyone and empower everyone to have those conversations, whether it's with your friends or family members, whether you're working through the Christmas period, or whether you're just chatting with neighbors. This is an opportunity to share about your pro-life worldview and to invite them on a magnificent journey towards a worldview in which all humans get human rights and so um, consider those talking points that we we covered last week go through them again if you need a reminder on them but yeah i hope that as you are are talking to your aunts and uncles and whatever other random um, relations that you talk to over the christmas break this might be an opportunity to share a little bit about your pro-life worldview, get a little bit of practice in, talk to people about abortion. Please, please do it. And share with us how it went. If it went really poorly, let us know. Hopefully we can help troubleshoot how to improve things. If it went really, really well, we want to hear that too, because this is all about changing minds, saving lives, and you are a huge, huge part of that. So please have those conversations and let us know how they go. That's
0: right. All right, everyone. Have those conversations like Cam said, so that you too can see people change their minds and see little lives saved. We'll see you next time.